Hello and welcome to Inside Exams. I'm Craig Barton. I'm a maths teacher with 15 years of classroom experience. I can reel off the definitions of indices and numerators, but some elements of exams are still shrouded in mystery. So across this series, I'm going behind the scenes to find out what goes into each element of exam season. Today, I'm tackling a big one. How grade boundaries are rewarded. Watching sports like cricket, football or gymnastics, I've always noticed the way objective technology and data are combined with subjective human judgment and experience to award victories. Which side is given more credence in cases of conflict? What criteria are they looking for when they make their judgments? Is a less experienced referee or judge expected to rely more heavily on statistics than their veteran colleague? I wonder if there are parallels with examiners. How heavily do they rely on past exam stats? Are our students' grades being decided on the whim of a single individual, or is there much more to it than that? Before I look for answers to my questions, I want to know what else you want to know. I'm Johnny Mitchell, I'm a history teacher, and I'm wondering what you can tell me to help me understand why the grade boundaries change every year. It'd be really useful to know what factors actually affect grade boundaries each year. And I'm definitely interested to learn how cold, hard stats are combined with human judgment to ensure the fairest grade boundaries are set each year. So I'm going to meet Leslie Mayer, a senior researcher at AQA, to find out how that relationship works. Leslie, it is fantastic to meet you today. If I'm right in saying you are a senior researcher who specialises in standards and awarding, is that right? Yes, that's correct. I'll tell you why I'm dead excited about speaking to you today, because we're going to talk about one of the most controversial things an awarding body gets involved in, and that's grade boundaries. Tell me this, and how do you set the grade boundaries? Well, we sit down with the senior examiners who have written the papers, the chief for the specification and the chair for the specification. All the big names are involved. All the big names are involved, that's right. And prior to that sitting down, we come up with some grade boundaries that we think are likely to be roughly the right marks for the grade. And we do that by looking at where the grade boundaries were last year considering what percentage of students have got each mark this year, looking at the distribution of marks. Oh, so the data, this is after the kids have taken the this paper. This is after the kids have so taken no, the So no decisions have been made whatsoever no, before the data's in. No, wow, absolutely. Okay. No decisions are made before the data's in. So once we get all the data in and, and it's all the papers have been marked, we consider the mean mark from last year, the mean mark from this year, how the spread of marks has changed, what the ability of the students is. And Can we, I, sorry to interrupt there, can I just ask on that, where are you getting the sense of the ability of the students from? Well, if we're working at A level, then we get a sense of their ability from their GCSE grades mm. that they took a couple of years before. If we're working at GCSE level, then we look at what they got at Key Stage 2. Wow, five years ago. So it's five years ago. And it's... The strength of the relationship between Key Stage 2 and GCSE and then GCSE to A-level, it doesn't matter from the point of view of individual subjects so much because what we're looking at is the continuity 
of that relationship. Right. From one year to the next. And as long as that continuity is there, that overall relationship between Key Stage 2 and GCSE doesn't actually change very much, then that means that what we can gauge from the student's ability will be a really helpful tool in predicting where we think those grade boundaries should be this year. So we get the mark distribution, we look at where we were last year, and we take everything into account from a statistical Mm. perspective to come up with some suggested grade boundaries that we think will be right for this year. Then we get the senior examiners in the room with the chief and the chair and we select scripts around those proxy grade boundary marks Ah, that we've come up with. On the boundary. On the boundary and in a five mark range around it. So the mark above, two marks above, the mark below and two marks below and enough scripts to share between those examiners who sit there and scrutinise these scripts and then they tell us whether they think the mark that we've come up with is about right for the grade that we're talking about. So we do that for every single paper Wow. Now, I'll tell you what, Leslie, you were saying things that were music to my ears there, because I'm a, I'm a mathematician, so I'm hearing mean, I'm hearing spread, I'm hearing sample size. But I'm also hearing is it's not just the stats. There's, there's an element of human judgment in there. Is, is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. We could do it statistically a lot of the time, but you have to admit that sometimes statistics are wrong they can give you the wrong indication i'm a statistician myself so i know that you can if you like get the wrong impression Mm, from statistics sometimes however equally it wouldn't be right simply just to rely on examiner judgment because we're all human beings and we all make mistakes so the key thing here is to bring those two really important pieces of information together the statistical side and the judgmental side and pull them to make sure that we get the right results for candidates one of the things i love to do on this series leslie is is pretend i'm a kind of fly on the wall get a bit of an exclusive as to what goes on behind the scenes so if i was this fly on the wall watching one of these meetings where all the big names are together making these decisions about the grade boundaries what would that look like i mean what what will be on the table what what kind of discussions will be going on Ha, right. Well, what we would have in the awarding meeting would be the specifications themselves, the question papers and mark schemes, so that all the senior examiners that have gathered together can look at those papers and remind themselves what they're all about. So the senior examiners will be sitting around the table looking at a candidate script from this year get the equivalent from last year, see what sort of standard the student achieved last year and then compare the two and go through the whole paper comparing like this. So they, if you like, they have to imbibe the standard from the archive script mm, oh, absolutely. and get that into their head for that particular grade and then translate that into this year. Yes. And think, OK, well, has... This candidate as a whole, bearing in mind if it's it's a different question paper, yeah, they're different being context, asked different everything. things. Absolutely. 
different context. Has this candidate done a bit better, about the same, slightly worse? Do I think this candidate therefore deserves the grade compared to the archive script? When you think about that, they're there for doing this for every single paper of every single subject. They might be there for whole days, two days. Wow. A-level history AS takes a week. A week. And then we've got A-level to do after that. So they're there for an awful long time, which makes you probably understand that possibly human judgment would be fallible if we were only relying on that. And that's why they also need the help that we give them with the statistical evidence as well. So we bring it all together. And it's a little bit of a helping hand because there's an awful lot going on on this table. Gee, I'll tell you what I'm picturing here. Like when they elect a new Pope and they lock everybody in the room, you're not allowed out until you've, you've made that decision. Is it like this? Like the, the door's <laughs> locked. You're not coming out till we get this grave boundary. This is absolutely incredible stuff. Now, a recurring theme throughout my conversations with with AQA experts for this podcast series has been the, the kind of constraints AQA are under from, from Ofqual or the DFE for, for certain things, whether it's the wording of questions or certain assessment objectives and so on and so forth. I assume you're under similar constraints when it comes to the proportion of students you can award a certain grade to. How does that come into play in terms of the setting of grade boundaries? Yeah, Ofqual keeps a very close watch on all of the awarding organisations when we're awarding particularly the AS and A-levels and GCSEs. Because the key thing here for us all, and definitely from Ofqual's perspective, is to make sure that we carry forward standards in each subject from year to year, Mm. not just within each awarding organisation, but across awarding organisations. So when you pull the results from all the five main JCQ awarding bodies, our overall results in each subject will stay constant every single year. So we're maintaining those standards. So what we do throughout the time when we're setting these grade boundaries, which is doing awarding, Mm. as we Mm. call it, we have weekly telephone conferences between all the JCQ awarding organisations and Ofqual. Oh, right. Where we talk about what's happened during the week, if you like, (laughs) and raise any issues that have come up that we think might be particularly important for all awarding bodies. So if we are having a particular problem with setting a grade boundary, it might be across various subjects or it might be in one particular subject, at those teleconferences we will raise it and say, is anyone else having this problem? And we talk about it with Ofqual and sort out what we're going to do. Because it might be, for example, that one awarding organisation is awarding a particular subject maybe a few days before Mm. someone else. Well, in which case, when that someone else comes to do the award, they need to start being prepared for it as well. So we're, we're all working together on this through the whole process. So I've been a maths teacher for 15 years now. First 12 years, I was dead happy because it was A star, A, B. I was following everything. Then it all kicked off and all of a sudden we've got numbers now, grade nine, grade eight. 
were you annoyed a bit? Because you, you, you've got your system, you, you can compare it to all the data from previous years, and then all of a sudden it's all up in the air, because I know it was a nightmare for teachers, but it must have been a nightmare for, for, for you and your team for setting these grade boundaries. How did you do it in that first run-through, let's say from the maths GCSE, when it had changed from letters to numbers? What helped was that at, at least we knew that the aim was to link the standard from the legacy GCSEs to the new ones at particular grades. Right. So where we used to be thinking about the standards, particularly at A, C and F, Mm. we are now bringing that forward to new GCSE 7, 4 and 1. Did it mean that there was more scope or more need for human judgment with this new, uh, the new numbering grading system because you didn't have as many statistics to fall back on or or did did it play out in roughly the same way? Throughout the process of transition between legacy and new, when we were setting the new standards, the key thing from Ofqual's perspective was to maintain the standards, comparable standards between the legacy spec Mm. and the new spec. Mm. So from the point of view of standards of the overall subject, we could be very sure that the statistical evidence would be the way to go because when you think about it there was so much change in the system Mm. we've got legacy grades going to new grades we've got old papers being completely rewritten into new papers completely different specifications new mark schemes and to some extent a completely new candidature because the teachers were no longer used to teaching the spec. Absolutely. We didn't want that first cohort of candidates to suffer mm. because it was a new specification and by dint of being the first cohort through. That wouldn't have been at all fair. Or I guess the flip side, you don't want them to, to benefit unfairly no, either. Absolutely, that's true. So To make sure that neither of those things Mm. happened, we were very key on taking forward comparable standards from the legacy spec to the new spec, which had to really be done statistically because there was so much else mushing around in the system (laughs) that, that human judgment wouldn't have been able to deal with that. Yes. However, what we did need is for a start, the senior examiners, chiefs and chairs, to look at the scripts on those marks that we were coming up with mm. and say, yeah, that, that feels about right. Sure. You know, in comparison to where we used to be, I'm looking at what this student has done now at this grade. Yeah, that feels pretty much right. Final question for you, Leslie. So I've spoken to other assessment design managers. They tell me they've got the artist job. I've spoken to the social media team. They've got the artist job. Or is the person with the hardest job, you and your team, who's got to set these grey boundaries? I suppose you could say that the hardest job for all is quite possibly for the teachers because they're the ones that have got to get the knowledge <laughs> into the kids in the first place. <laughs> we just deal with the results of it. <laughs> You're endearing yourself to our listeners there, Leslie. That is a cracking answer. Um, Leslie, you have taken a subject that I've been fascinated about for years and I have learnt loads. So thank you so much for inviting me in today. Thank you, Craig. Okay, 
I feel much more clued up on how exam boards set grade boundaries. But in some subjects, we as teachers have a big role to play in choosing whether our students will sit foundation or higher tier papers. I know I'm not the only one who can struggle with the weight of that decision, especially since the introduction of the new GCSE grades. So I'm going to meet Jane Wood, an MFL teacher at Cardinal Hume Catholic School, because I've heard she gets her tiering decisions spot on. Jane, first off, thank you so much for inviting us into your school today. You're very welcome. Now, I've been looking forward to speaking to you for ages because we went through the new grading system for the Maths GCSE. And this threw up loads of questions about tiering decisions. And I think as a school, for some of our kids, we got that decision wrong. So I'm hoping I can learn from you to how to make those decisions a bit better in future. So my first question that I want to ask you, Jane, is... Before the grading system changed for MFL, how did you make tiering decisions? Well, we could mix and match. So often, if we had pupils getting a seven, say in writing, but listening and reading were their weaker sort Mm. of subjects, we were able to enter them for foundation. Right. So we were very, very anxious about moving over to the new tiering system because we no longer had that flexibility and we had to put them in for either foundation or either higher. So that was a massive change for us. So we played it safe last year. We're very lucky at Cardinal Hume because we teach in sets. Yes. And they're set it according to their ability. And also all of the lessons are on at the same time. So throughout their GCSE career, we can move them from class to class without it really impacting on anything else. Nice. Generally, it's the sort of top two, three sets who do higher and the lower sets that do foundation. But we've just recently had movement from kids in the bottom set coming up to my set one because they're going to do higher. And literally, we made that decision in February based on their second round of mocks that they did. So talk to me about some of the things that would cause you to change the tier that a student makes it. Their performance in exams, Mm. their resilience is quite important because in languages, on the higher paper especially, they have to be quite resilient in the listening and reading papers because it's in peaks and troughs, whereas in maths, it's very much a gradual climb to the grade nine, whereas it's not for us. So if you don't have a particularly resilient student, and I'm thinking of my set five last year, where there was one student who had a grade seven target... That was never going to happen because of many factors, but mainly this resilience thing. So if she was suddenly faced with a grade nine question, question two, she would just give up and say, I can't do it. And so that's quite a challenge, I think, for languages teachers. That's fascinating, that, because that, that brings a whole, it's a whole different ball it game does. going into that exam. It's almost a test of psychology yeah. above and beyond the mm-hmm. test of ability. So you would think that the overlap questions would be the first questions on the, on the paper, but in fact, they're not. Wow. Um, and then the translation that they have to do at the end as well, there's really difficult elements in that. And so it is really difficult for the students. And it's hard for teachers, I think, to teach that resilience. Now, one of the things we found difficult as a school whenever, well as a maths department whenever the new grading system came okay. in, is we, we had no data to go off. Whereas yeah. in the past you had, lo- you know, years and years and years of mock exams. You had years of data on those. So you could say, if a child got this in this mock exam they're probably going to go ahead to get this grade yeah. and they're probably most suited to this tier. But of course the new grading system comes in and all that's disappeared. So yeah. what did you do from a data perspective? Where are you getting evidence 
evidence from? We spoke with the maths department, but it was really hard because we knew we couldn't compare grade boundaries from maths mm. to grade boundaries yes. in MFL because we don't have whole cohorts oh, of schools right. who do it. So the proportion, I suppose, of the grade boundaries are, are, are different. You have, yes. you know, you have to have a certain amount of A star, like grade nines, grade eights. So we kind of looked at what we thought. We thought it's going to be more challenging, mm. and we kind of came up with our own grade boundaries, okay. and which were very high yes. now in hindsight. And we got a very pleasant surprise, obviously, on results day because we had underpredicted what the students would get. And, you know, that could have gone against us because we could have demotivated students. And we've learned from it because we got far too many fives. Had we known what the grade boundaries were going to be, we would have put more students in for higher. It's better definitely. to be that side of it, though, isn't it? Like, I think for the first time round, yeah. And it's, it's an interesting one, Max. So we did something similar where we invented kind of our worst-case scenario yeah. grade boundaries. Yeah, yeah. But there is that fine line, isn't there, between being on the safe side, but as you say, not demotivating the students. Yeah. How do you cope with that? Well, what we also did, obviously for the listening and reading, because you can't say to them, this is what you need to be able to do to get a grade nine. This oh. is, you know, in maths, you can say this is a grade nine style question. Mm. This is a, But what we did do is for our writing and our speaking papers, we had sort of grade criteria. Right. So we had a checklist of things that they needed to do to get a grade nine, a grade eight. We went loosely off what was provided by AQA. Yes. Um, so we kind of thought about the old GCSE and the types of language structures and verbs and and we came up with that so when we marked people's writing work that was quite motivating for them because we'd say well this is what mark you got according to the mark scheme according to us but you know you had all those elements of those grades in the one thing we got obsessed about, and I don't know if this is true in MFL, yeah. is these the crossover questions or the common questions, yes. the questions that are going to be on foundation and are going to be on higher. Yeah. And we use that to inform quite a few of our decisions for tier entry. Was that something that, that you did? And if so, how? Yeah, we, we do use the crossover questions. But for us, we kind of, we'd look at the holistic picture because we kind of said as a department, we've got most most control over the writing and the speaking papers. Mm-hmm. And if a student on the foundation paper, for example, is smashing a five in all of those papers, yes. well, then we know they pretty much need to have a go at high. Yes. Similarly on higher, if they're getting between fours and fives, I'd rather them do the paper that they're going to feel they've succeeded in Mm. than struggle on the higher to get a five. And that was kind of part of our reason for choosing tiers last year as well. Were there any particularly difficult decisions you had to make? We had a few sort of students perhaps who had joined us later than year seven Mm. and who perhaps in different languages at different schools and they were high ability students in other subjects but because they didn't have the foundations in Spanish. So that was, "Mm, what do we do, what do we do? They were taught, obviously, extremely well for the foundation. And then in January time, yeah, January, we moved them up into the higher class. Mm. And I think because they had those strong foundations, they did go on to do extremely well. And I think they got a seven and an eight, maybe. And also... I had a very difficult decision to make because I had an ab initio French class as well. You're going to have to tell me what that is. So 
we'd alternate a system at our school whereby we we offer both languages but on alternate years so oh. last year was a Spanish year for us, but the students can oh. still take a second language. Right. So I had a, a class of only five, and they'd not done it before. Obviously, they were really able linguists. They right. were in top set for Spanish. But my challenge was, do I put them in for foundation or do I put them in for higher? Because they've got targets of sevens, eights, and nines, but they've never done French before. Oh, my God. But needless to say, there was lots of blood, sweat, and tears. Yes. Um, and... There was one girl where I hummed and hard and have I made the right decision, mm. but she still came out with a five. You put in for higher. Yeah, yeah, in for higher. And then the others got six or sevens and two nines, actually. Wow. So they did incredibly well. But I think that was because they had the Spanish as well. Yes. And so they knew the format of the exam. They knew the exam strategies and techniques. So, But you must still a bit of, bit of nerves going there, right? Well, I did because I, did, I, I had no idea, no idea what the grade boundaries were going to be. And I mean, did you find the same as we did the first year of the new grading system? That I mean, I'm always on edge over yeah. summer in the build-up results yeah. day. But I don't think I slept for the whole of August because anything could have happened that first year through did yeah. you have the same kind of nerves oh absolutely it's and horrible weren't it yeah and i remember sending a member of slt a message on the thursday morning saying how did we do <laughs> and he sent me back oh yeah languages are looking canny that was what he okay. said to me <laughs> okay. and um so i was like oh that doesn't like, sound too yeah. good and then he sent me through the breakdown of results and it you know we'd massively massively underpredicted yes. like by 20 percent wow and it was because of our grade boundaries you know if we hadn't played it safe if we had the grade boundaries but, you know, we've learned from that. And this year, we've 20% more kids doing higher this right. year than there were last year. Let's go a little bit more controversial here. Okay. So I'm going to quote something here from Ofqual that I find fascinating. Okay. And I'll give you my opinion on it. And then right. I'll be fascinated to, to hear yours. So Ofqual say this. All students should be taught so they learn subjects and skills logically and can develop confidence. It is better to do a foundation paper from real knowledge and learning than tackle a higher paper just armed with exam tricks. Now, that sounds fair enough. Well, where could be the possible argument with that? But I question sometimes, is that actually better for the student? Because, as I've said, sometimes I've taught kids in the past who I know all right, they're going to have a worse experience doing a higher tier paper because they can't access as much of it, but they'll probably come out with a better grade than if they did the foundation paper. Yeah. Is that something that you could see in MFL or am I, am I talking a load of rubbish? So in an ideal world, like yes, that would happen. So yes, you would like your student to do that paper, of course. but we're governed by results yes, being measured yes. on results so of course you're going to put them in for the higher paper because you get more points for them Absol- if they get absolutely so, but uh, I, you know I totally get it and it to be honest it ties in with we've just become a, a lead school as part of the new DFE initiative for MFL hubs okay yes and this all ties in with the work that we're doing at the moment which is leading down to key stage three and about improving languages teaching from then because, you know, we're not equipping students with the right skills to succeed right. from lower down their education. And it's been a real eye-opener for me because it's made me think, you know what, if I taught phonics properly from year seven, perhaps their performance would be better in the yes in the listening yeah, exam. Yeah. So I think that's, that statement does tie in with the sort of wishes of the MFL hub, if, if you like, because that's what we want to do ultimately is to equip our students with with the skills to be able to tackle those, the knowledge rather, not the skills, to be able to tackle those papers. So when they get faced with a higher reading paper, because of their knowledge of vocabulary and the fact that we've done 
word families from year seven, they can deal with the difficult words because they can see the links with them. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about was, it's one thing us as teachers being uncertain about grade boundaries with with the tier changes and so on. But there's also the uncertainty that the students face. And like I remember, you know, kids, year 11s of three, four, five, six years ago, they had access to all the grade boundaries so that when they did pass papers under exam conditions, they could say with certainty, I got an A in this paper, I got a B in this paper. And the more they did, the more confident they were as to where they were at. But obviously, again, with the with the tier changes, the new grading system, all that's disappeared now. So my kids, they were saying... I've got 72, what does that mean? And I was like, well, I've no idea. It could mean this, it could mean that. How did you, if you did, stop your kids getting obsessed with with grading when you couldn't say with any degree of confidence what grade they were getting at any point? It's a really good question. As I say, we did the success criteria, but inevitably they want to know. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Um, We'd sort of like developed another system in school. One of our science teachers is an absolute whiz with an Excel sheet. Nice. So he developed this sort of um, data sheet whereby it worked out the like averages of classes and it came up with pie charts and helped us with graves and stuff so we could say like well these are what our results have kind of always been in the languages department does this tie in and you know this is like generally the percentage of kids who get a nine or seven we generally hit that target is that happening with that set of data and so we did it kind of that way and I think that was really helpful to, to the science department as well certainly and using that sort of excel spreadsheet I didn't understand how to use it I just used, I just put the figures in and it works everything out for me I love a bit of excel answer to many a problem is an excel <laughs> but that, spreadsheet because the students do want to know of it's course. not good enough just saying you got 85 percent it was easier with the writing and the speaking because we could say that was you know worthy of And just finally from me, if we've got any teachers listening who are faced with these decisions, faced with these tiering decisions, is it foundation, is it higher? Have you any words of wisdom for them, any advice that that you've learnt over these last couple of years to pass on to them? I think you have to think about what's right for the student. Ultimately, yes, they might have a target grade of an eight, but are they realistically going to come anywhere near that if you put them in for higher Or are they going to leave that exam thinking, I I, I did it and I got a five? And yeah, they're three grades below, but you've got to think of the bigger picture. It's compared to the rest of the the country, not the key stage two SATs results when we work out our data. But it is hard. Speak to the students. Speak to their, you know, your head of department. Speak to your SLT link. Speak to their other teachers. You know, are they are they underperforming in other subjects? Mm. Is it a, a cross curricular thing? Because a lot of these students will be feeling immense pressure. Don't put them in if there's if there's a chance they're going to get a six. If you, this is what we did, I suppose, last year. If they were consistently getting sixes, there was no, we weren't going to put them in for a five. And actually, we didn't get any fives off the higher paper. Right. Because we played it safe and we put them all in for foundation. And they all got fives. We only got a smattering of threes and we didn't get anything below that. Wow. And we, you know, we don't have just the creme de la creme doing it here. We have 65% do the A back so we have strong numbers at, it, yes. at, at GCSE yeah I think you've just got to do that if they're, if they're just scraping fives on the higher it's not worth it not worth the risk no nope. well I'll tell you what in a world of uncertainty you've given me plenty of clarity there I just wish that I've spoken to you before we made some of our decisions ourselves so thank you so much for your time today Jane oh you're welcome Craig thank you 
It's interesting to hear that, like exam boards, Jane actually relies on a combination of data and opinion to make the right tiering decisions for her students. Whole year timetabling, in a way that makes it easy to switch students between sets, seems like a really clever idea to me too. If you feel as though you're only just getting started learning about the awarding process, head to the podcast show notes, where you'll find some common misconceptions about grade boundaries myth-busted. Over the course of this series, I'll be talking to more exam writers, markers and pioneering teachers. So if you want to swat up throughout exam season, make sure you rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. Until next time, goodbye.